You know, as I was singing and praising God, I was also thinking about the sermon. And I came to a realization a few years ago that it's real easy to preach a sermon when it's a sin, when you're preaching against sins that you don't necessarily struggle with. And it's also really easy to preach a sermon to a crowd or to a congregation when it's a sin that you don't feel like a lot of them struggle with. Interesting thing about the book of James, that's not what it is. And I don't know about you, but as we've went through this book, it has been convicting. And so my warning is today, probably not going to be a whole lot different. Um, But, you know, if you were at the school of ministry this morning, as Paul was talking about disciplining his children, and how much love it actually is to do that, then we should be extremely thankful for the book of James and how it corrects us and how it guides us and how the fact that if you're a believer in Christ, no matter how convicting or how um, how much you may feel like you have failed because we all have failed, he's redeemed us. And we're not stuck in that failure, and he is correcting us as a father loves his children, corrects them. And there's not a judgment coming down as a judge in a punishment way. So just remember that and praise God for that in everything that we do. The payment has been made for this and he's going to teach us, and I pray that this morning he does just that. Let's, let's, I'll be in James chapter 4, and let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for this. What a beautiful morning you've given us. Uh, just a, an amazing blessing to be able to come together and worship you. I thank you for the equipping hour and the truth that was taught there. God, I pray that we would all seek exactly um, to, to honor the authorities that are placed above us, God, in so doing that we would honor you. Um, I thank you for the songs and and the gift of music that you've given us and the gifted musicians and singers that you've given us. God, I thank you for them. I thank you for being able to just sing a song of praise to you, Lord, when we did not deserve to be able to do so, and you've granted us that. God, I thank you for that. I pray now as we look at this, that we would better understand how to love one another, that we would better understand how to come together as a, as a family of believers, and that we would honor and praise you through that, that we would be a light to this world. As we heard this morning, that we would be a salt in this earth. Lord, that, uh, God, that we would be a difference, that you would be a difference and that you would do that through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're in chapter 4, James chapter 4, and we're down towards the bottom of the chapter. But I want to back up because to get this chapter, you have to get it in. To get this bottom part, you kind of have to get the context. So, So just remember that the first part of this chapter was mainly about avoiding war. Verse 1, he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come 
from your desires for pleasure that war in your members. He's using the term war, but it's a conflict. Mostly what he's talking about is amongst the believers. This conflict that's going on between us. And it is, he explains through those first few verses that the main cause of that fighting, the main cause of these skirmishes, the main cause of these quarrels is selfishness and pride. And, and that's that way you, you can, and I, if you remember this, it, it was, you can take this with any relationship that you have, and this applies. So it can be within the family, it can be within the church, it can be within your workplace, it can be within the government. Most of the time, these fights and wars and quarrels come from selfishness and pride. And then at the, the last part, down around verse 9 and 10, the main way to avoid those, the main way to overcome those, the way, main way to rise above those was through humility before Christ. And so as we come to verse 11 now, um, I think we're going to see some specific instructions and why he gives those instructions. So let's look at verse 11. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And this, this at first look at this verse... It, it seems a little bit confusing. It's talking about the law. If you judge your brother, you judge the law. You hate the law, and it, it's like, what exactly is, is this talking about? So I'm, I'm going to hope, I'm going to attempt here to explain that. With the help of God, I think, I think you'll, it'll become clear. But the clear inter- interpretation before you get to that part about the law, when he says, "Do not speak evil one another, brothers." is to not speak evil of one another. There's no, there's no secret interpretation in that. It's pretty clear. And actually, the word, actually, the understanding, the true understanding is, do not speak evil whether it's true or not. Okay, so just because something is true doesn't give you the right to go around talking bad about that person. And when it says brother, of course, it's talking brother or sister in Christ. It's talking about fellow members of the body of Christ. So, you know, we, we talk about gossip, and people will people somehow believe that if it's a true, then it's not gossip. Yes, it is. It is gossip. It is slander. Even if it's true, it's not slander. No, it is slander. You have no right to be speaking evil of your brother or sister no matter if it's true or not, you need to. If it's a problem that really needs to be addressed, what are we? What are we called to do? We're to address it with that brother or sister. And Christians have code words in this. We'll talk about the code words a little later. But we kind of have ways that we do gossip that doesn't sound like gossip, right? Like, hey, hey, we really need to pray for Landon. He's struggling with this, this, and this. Did he tell you that in confidence? Did he ask you to tell us to pray for that? That's possibly 
a way of spreading gossip that makes it sound spiritual, right? Or, I mean, there's lots of, we, you, you guys know what we do, so let's move on. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And so here, here's the question. How does speaking evil on a brother judge the law? What, what is this? How does this all going to make sense? We'll turn to John 13, 34. And this is something that I believe you've probably heard in this church a lot. And there's a reason for that. Because it's very important. 13, 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then in Mark 12, verse 31, this is when Jesus, they were, they were asking him, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there is no other commandment greater than these. And what he did when he said that is, he summed up the entire law of God. When you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four are all about the love you have for God, the love you have for the Creator, the love you have for Christ. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That sums up the first four. And then the next six are all about how you treat your neighbor or other human beings. And here's a, this is a big secret. It's not really a secret. But it is a big key to the understanding that if you get the first four right, the next six are automatic. I promise you. You cannot love the one who loved us so much that he died in our place. If you love him, but you don't love his people, you don't love him. Okay, so that's the, that's the key to understanding all of this. It's the key to understanding what James is talking about. So when he says, when he says the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, he's speaking against the law. That's the law that he's talking about. It'd be like if if um, if you as a, it's it's kind of like this. If you as a married man, and the guy says, "Man, I just I, I love you. I'd do anything for you, but I hate your wife." I've heard people say that stuff. Well, guess what? Somebody says that to me. I can promise you this: they don't love me. And we're probably going to have a discussion, right? An intense one. Why? Because if they love me, they're going to, well, what about my kids? What, yeah, I love you, but I just hate your kids. Your kids are terrible. You don't love me then. They're part of me, right? They are a part of me. What, they are God's gift to me. They're in my protection, they're in my home. 
my wife, my kids. Now, so when we, and that's exactly what we're doing when we say, yeah, God, I love you. But that servant you have, the guy over here that's saying this and this, he's terrible. And you speak evil of him. And this is, we're talking inside the church, we're talking in the general body of Christ. When you do that, it's like saying, I don't love, I don't love your law. I don't believe your law. You see what I'm saying here with James? So, so the, I mean, it's, it's summed up with love your neighbor as yourself. And he's talking there about all men. We should put ourselves aside and love them more. But it's even clearer still when you go to Mark or when you go to back to John, he says, love one another as I have loved you. So the commandment that Christians love one another the way Christ loves us is extremely clear. That, that much is not arguable. It's very clear in Scripture. And so when we speak evil and we war against one another and we slander one another, slander one another and we get built up in pride, we're not only speaking evil of that person, but we're speaking evil of the one who claims them. He says, I've set my affection on that brother or that sister. And yes, is there problems? Are there things that we need to point out? Absolutely. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about there's actual things that we're all working together to overcome sin. We're laboring in that together. But we all know the difference. I don't have to sit here and explain to you that there's a difference between me really coming alongside and praying with you, and laboring through sin with you, and, and if you're in error, coming alongside and trying to help you to overcome that error. That's all biblical and scriptural, but that's not what he's talking about, and I think we all know the difference. I think we know the difference when it's, you offended me, and so I'm going to lash back. Right? And that's what he's talking about. And, and we're living in a time right now, I don't know if you guys have noticed, uh, but there's a lot of this going on within the body of Christ. And I think it would do all of God's people well to read this book of James and consider it when they start bringing this stuff up. Um, it applies to all born-again Christians Everywhere. So do you think this is happening? Um, I think we're in the midst on a global, maybe not global, maybe mostly U.S., I'm not real sure, um, of what James would call war among Christians. And it's over, uh, there's lots of, there's lots of, uh, buzzwords, key terms over it, social justice, social gospel, all these terms that I'm not exactly sure exactly what they all mean. But I know this, there are many evils being spoken by our brothers about our brothers on both sides of this issue. And I honestly, truly believe there's solid brothers and sisters in Christ that find themselves on both sides of this. But what does James say about it? 
He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. These are worldly things that we're talking about. These are my worldly rights that we're talking about. Did anybody have more rights than Christ? He's the only one. This is what I say on the streets whenever I get to the gospel. Because I'll go through the law. I'll say, you, you've, you've lied. You've stolen. They admit, I've lied. I've, I've told hundreds. Can't even count them all. You've stolen things. You've used God's name in vain. I've looked with lust. You know, you go through the Ten Commandments and they're violate, they've violated them all, as we all have. And here you have Christ come who is the only one who's ever set foot on this planet that did not deserve to die. He's the only one that had rights. Let's just, be, let's just get plain about it. He's the only one that had any rights. The very fact that any of us are living was a violation of, not a violation, but it was an act of mercy. Right? The very fact that God didn't wipe off mankind when Adam sinned was an act of mercy. And the very fact that he didn't destroy us when we first sinned is an act of mercy because he has the right to do so. So Jesus comes and he's the only one with rights. He's the only one that didn't deserve to die. He's the only one that didn't deserve the punishment of God. He's the only one that didn't deserve the wrath of God. And what's he do? He lays all of that aside for who? For us. For his church. And now we're going to fight about rights. James says, it is not, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? Is that not what really happens when it's my rights, my whatever? I deserve better, just like Paul was talking about this morning when we're, when we're dealing with authorities. And I'm telling you, I was convicted. I mean, I was very convicted this morning. So this is coming at me, too. Listen, I'm telling you right now. There's something that wells up within you, and it's pride. That's what it is. I, no, you don't understand. I, you, you can't understand it from my point of view. Well, that may be true, but I can understand it from James's point of view. I think we all can. I think with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can see that. And I think it is, got to die to self. Whatever that looks like. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And I think the biggest thing with all of this is, the reality is, what does the world see with this? What do the unbelievers look at when they see this? They see a group of people who are supposed to be who we claim to be bought with a price, with the precious blood of Christ, redeemed from our sin, redeemed from the wrath of God, redeemed from this worldly thing. And what are we doing? We're warring together with each other. And it's not just that issue. This is all issues. This is just the one that seems to be the hot button right now. But it happens within the body of Christ, too. Have you ever known some people? And I see this in... In a lot of churches, or not in the church, but I see it with a lot of people who attend churches. I've dealt with it in my job, where some people will be absolutely 
going at each other. And for some reason, I get to hear it on both sides. I don't know why this is, but I hear it. They'll be bad mouthing the other one. I'll be like, you guys go to church together. Not only are you fellow Christians, and it can be over some of the silliest stuff. Sometimes it's serious stuff. It doesn't matter. But not only are you Christians, you're in the same congregation. You're supposed to meet together every Sunday morning and worship God together. But then on Sunday night, you're over here telling me how bad you can't stand the other one. Come on. Christ died. The man, the creator, the God who gave you life, he died. And we're going to squirm and fight over these worldly Things and Wednesday night, if you weren't here, it was a it was a great lesson. Um, but but Randy talked about a lot of this stuff. It, I mean, it just kind of keeps coming up, and I think it's God preparing us to group together as a body. Because here's the reality: we're we are to submit to our authority, just as we heard this morning. And that also means when it is not right sometimes. And we're we're coming to a time where persecution is going to become greater. And I believe when persecution on the church becomes greater from the outside, I believe some of these things that we fight over will start to fall away and we'll really start bonding together. And I hope that's why God is preparing us for this, is so that we can bond together. I would rather us grow that close together without the persecution, to be honest. But historically speaking, it seems like that's when it comes. But 1 Peter 4.8, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Does that mean we can't have good, wholehearted discussions about these issues? No, we need to have those. We need to understand how to help our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, How to help them in this world, how to help them with physical needs. But we need to do it with 1 Peter 4a in mind, which is to love one another earnestly. And here's, here's what I would tell people. Here's what I try to tell myself, and I don't always follow it, but I try to remember this myself. First off, in correcting someone's sin, I think Paul Washer said, unless your knees are bleeding from being in prayer for that person, it's probably not your place. Lots of prayer involved with that. And I would say that's the case whenever it comes to these indifferences these differences we have on society and on cultural things and all of this stuff, if, you don't, if you're not approaching the person for a true care and love with them, then it's probably going to be God using somebody else to approach that person. If you don't have love one for another, and that's not the reason that you're feeling this willing up, then it's probably the opposite that James talks about. It's probably the pride that's doing it. So just keep that in mind whenever you're dealing with conflicts with your brothers and sisters. Okay, let's move on verse 12. He says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. 
But who are you to judge your neighbor? So God is the, God is the one who gave the law. And since he is the only one who can keep the law, we've all proven that. Christ kept the law when he was here. God is the one who gave it. He's the only one who really understands it to its fullest. He's the only one that can judge accordingly. And so our command is to love our neighbor, not to pass judgment. Now, in verse 13 through 15, James, it's kind of like he changes the subject, but it still stays in the same context. And so he starts, then he begins to discuss making plans and how we should go about this business as Christians. So look at verse 13. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And so is this relevant for us today? You know, it's amazing. People will actually say that book, that Bible, it's so archaic. It's not relevant to us anymore. But yet as you study it, as you read it, it speaks directly to you in this time and it is extremely relevant. I mean, do we make plans today? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's hopefully you hopefully you do, and we're going to talk about the right way to do it and the wrong way. But I mean, people plan for college. All these guys that are in college right now didn't just accidentally wind up there. They had to plan ahead, get get things lined out, make plans. They make you make plans for a job. You don't just become a doctor. Just say, yeah, I think I'll be a doctor today. No, I want my doctor to have made plans ahead of time, right? And and follow those plans, and I want him to be good at it, or her to be good at it, right? Uh, so we plan for marriage. Some are planning for marriage now. It's a great thing. It's not something you just do on a whim. You know, you think this through. You plan ahead. You find out, hey, we're going to have to have a place to live. We're going to have to have something to buy food with, right? So there's plans that we make, vacation, retirement. There's all these plans that we make in our life. And some are better at making them than others. Just You can just watch and see that. But uh, So making plans in, a, in and of itself is not wrong. You can look through Paul's life. And he made plans to travel. He made plans. He he told the church to make plans. Hey, set aside this much at the beginning of the month or the beginning of the week so that when we come, it'll be there. Plan ahead on that. Yeah, he, so the Apostle Paul, Paul made plans. And um, I would say that making plans or, and even setting goals and things like that are a key to success in, in the ventures we take in life. They're necessary. But there's a right way and a wrong way to make plans, and, and James discusses them both. So let's look at the wrong way first. That's kind of the order that he went in. Uh, life is too complex to just assume all things say, stay the same. Okay, so... 
if you think about life and the complexity of life, you think about time. Time is complex. It's just not, it's, it's not an easy thing to maneuver. Does anybody in here have an easy time managing their time all the time? That's a lot of times. <laughs> no, we, we, I, I think we all struggle with it, some more than others, again. But we all struggle with having enough time to get the things done that we're going to do, right? And, and it's an amazing, it is an, an amazing phenomenon how some days time disappears a lot quicker than others. I mean, it's reality. I can't explain it, but it's reality. So time is complex. The activities that we're doing are rarely the same every time. They're complex. The people that we deal with are complex. The location is complex. You know, he says... That they're going to go into such and such city, and they're going to have. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to make this trade. We're going to make this money. And I was thinking as I as I was just studying this, think about the dozens of towns or hundreds of towns right now, and the thousands of people that had plans to do their business down in Florida or North Carolina. Their plans changed. Right, and now they're evacuate, evacuating it, or they're riding it out down there, or whatever's going on. There's no stability in their plans at all, and many of them had they're they're caught off guard, even though there's warnings. But that, there's always this uncertainty. Well, there's complexity of the location. There's complexity of the surroundings, and the reason is you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Life, so life, all those complexities, and then you look at life itself as uncertain. 2,996. Does anybody know what that number is? 2,996 people had planned, he says, going to such and such city. Well, these 2,996 people had planned on going to New York City on September 11th and spending a year there and we're going to be there and we're going to trade this and trade that for profit and 2,996 people never left there on 9-11. We don't know what tomorrow brings. What is your life, he says, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Look at Psalms 39. Psalm 39, verse 5 and 6, he says, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. So the wrong way to go about planning is to not consider these things. It's not to consider the sovereignty of God. Here we are, as born-again believers, 
We are, a, we are able to cry out, Abba, Father. We know the King. And yet, and, and I am extremely guilty of this. And yet I make plans without consulting Him. How foolish is that? I make plans financially. I make financial decisions. I make physical plans on where I'm going, what I'm doing. And I don't bother to consult the one who knows everything. It's not real intelligent on my behalf. But yet I do it. Why? Because of pride. Because I get this idea that I can do it on my own. Just like those 2,996 people did. Now, hopefully, in that group, hopefully there were many who had considered this. I don't know. I don't know, I, I don't know how many were believers, how many were not believers. But I know this. If we go about our life with that plan, with that pride, with that lack of consulting of the Father, we'll wind up with our plans being wrecked. And then we wind up depressed. And then we wind up in despair. And then we wind up, woe is me. Why did this happen to me? Why did I wind up here and there and everything's not working? Did you ask the one who knew all before you started? Well, no. Maybe that's why you wound up here. Right? Maybe he's teaching you a lesson through this. So what is the right way? The right way. He says, instead, you ought to say... If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Not a lot of difference, right? There's not a lot of difference. It doesn't change. I mean, it might. It might change the entire course of what you're doing. Because you might say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do this. And then as you say the words, like, well, why would the Lord ever will me to go to that bar? Or why would the Lord ever will me to go violate this? Just by saying it might be conviction enough to stop you from doing it, but it also might change nothing. You might be looking to buy a new car. And your words may be, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to go out, I'm going to save all the money, and I'm going to go buy this car. Or your words may be, if the Lord wills, I'm going to save up, I'm going to go buy this car. And then there's a huge difference in your attitude when the Lord doesn't will it. And you've been saving up and instead your roof gets blown off and you have to replace it. Well, it wasn't the Lord's will. And so your heart is already prepared for what God is really going to do. And praise God that he actually provided the money ahead of time, right? You see how this works? So it's all about submission. It's all about the mindset. You know, it used to be a more common saying. I know I heard my mom say it all the time. If the good Lord willing and the creeks don't rise. She was from southeast Missouri where the creeks rose about four times a year. And when they did, you weren't going anywhere. You sat right there because it flooded the whole place. But it was a, it's, a really, it's a real saying. And shouldn't we say that? Shouldn't we speak like that? I've talked about this before. Our language should be more Christian. What could that do? That could open up a door to share the gospel with somebody. It's just like if somebody asks you how you're doing, you say, yeah, I'm good. Or you could say, I'm blessed. Seems like a subtle difference, right? Until you do it, and somebody goes, wow, 
I did it one time, and it was like, wow, that was a, I really like that answer. It was another Christian. And we kind of got to talk a little bit. I've heard people say, I'm blessed and in high favor. And if you are a Christian, you are. You're blessed and in high favor with Christ. What can that do? It might open up a door. It might, it might give somebody a reason to ask of the hope that lies within you. This could be the same thing. Yeah, if the Lord's willing, I'm going to go to, you know, Ardmore. If the Lord's willing, I'm going to go to Oklahoma City next week and, and go to Bricktown and preach the gospel. Or it could just be, if the Lord's willing, I'm going to make it to your football game. And to be honest with you, I, I don't speak like that near enough. Kids ask me all the time, you coming to our game tonight? Yeah, I'm going to try. Man, what an opportunity I just missed. Just in a one little subtle thing. And James is saying, this is how you ought to do it. And if we speak that way, we'll think that way. And that's how we need to think. We need to think, if God's willing, I'm going to do this. If He's not willing, I'm not. I want to stop. If He's not willing, I don't want to keep going there. I don't want to keep pushing that. And it may be a completely good thing. Do you remember when um, Paul was going around preaching the gospel? I don't remember, where were they going? And the Holy Spirit forbid them. Well, that's preaching the gospel. The Holy Spirit forbid them to go there. Why? He had something for them over here. And if we will listen and plan accordingly, then we'll be blessed in that. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, you shall lay your plans... And arrange your machinery and start your schemes. But without the Lord, you will do nothing. So much truth in that. And we can have all the plans. We can have it all laid out. And God says, no, that wasn't the way I'm going to do it. And in the blink of an eye, he'll change it. And everything changes. And we should be prepared and honor that when he does. All of our plans should include God. We should pray before we move. And I don't mean like move, but before we make a mo- movement, before we decide to do something, we should pray. Um, we should seek God's counsel through prayer, through His Word, through teaching, through a group of godly counselors, right? Through other Christians. That's what He's put us together in a body for. This isn't just about us. You have a question about something? You know, Dustin Dornick talked to Paul and I last week about, you know, furthering his education. It's great. I mean, it's getting, a, getting counsel from other Christians. We ha- he has put us here in this body, and there's many different areas of expertise in here, different avenues people have went. Seek out godly counsel from one another. And then outside of this body as well, seek Christian godly counsel and make your plans accordingly. And now let's look at verse 16. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And so he kind of brings this all back together. Our fighting, our plans, our selfishness, our pride. You're boasting in your arrogance. There is 
and I honestly don't know um, if the Internet has been good or bad. Because I use it for a lot of good things. And I've also seen it used for bad. I've used it for bad. Social media is the same way. There's so much good we can make connections. We've made great connections with these brothers down in Lawton. And just in all, all over the world, we can make all these great connections with other Christians. And yet, at the same time, we can tear each other down with it. I've seen debate after debate after debate on social media. One guy, I even heard him say, yeah, I beat him down. What were you debating about? The love of Christ. You beat him down with it, huh? I'm not sure you did. I'm not sure you won that debate like you think you did, right? It's just evil. That's the evilness. That is the flesh coming up through us. We need to just find humility. Verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so he's going to close all of this together. He's going to talk, he's talked about the fighting amongst ourselves, the fighting we have as Christians. He's talked about how we make plans according to the sovereignty of God. He's talked about our pride, our selfishness, our boastfulness, and how humility will cover that. And then he closes it with this. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That's called the sin of omission. Most sins we talk about are sins of commission, right? We commit a sin. We're, we're physically or mentally or whatever, we're violating God's standards. But this is the sin of omission. And for a Christian, it becomes a great area. If you know there is something that needs to be done, do it. It's an amazing thing as a pastor, as a Christian. People come to you and ask you, is it okay if I do this? You know, you can bring out all the all the most common ones. Are tattoos okay? Are piercings okay? Is it okay to drink? Is it okay to go to, you know, such and such place? All these things that are kind of like on the border. Nobody ever has asked me, hey, is it okay if I go visit my neighbor and try to talk to him about Christ? Is it okay if I call and check on so-and-so in the church and just make sure they're doing okay during the week? Is it okay if I gather up some food and take it to this family that I know they're struggling? Nobody ever asked that. You know why? Because it's obviously okay. Not only okay, if it's on your heart, you're to do it. If God puts somebody on your mind, and so what, we've, what we're seeing here is, this is how we overcome all that other stuff. All those other fightings, they come to an end when we get the focus off of ourselves and start serving one another. I wonder how many problems would be solved in the body of Christ if we did this, if we filled up our time so much with doing what we ought to be doing, knowing something is doing to good and not doing it is a sin, 
if we spent all of our t- if if everything that we had come into our heart and come into our mind to do that was good, if we did it, we wouldn't have time to be dealing with all these other little quarrelsome things that are going on. We would be too busy serving one another. And here's another thing that I've noticed, and I've done this at school a lot. Any teacher in here knows that you have some students that are just knuckleheads. They are just difficult to deal with, and you're convinced that the reason they come into your classroom is so that God can sanctify you, and that's probably partly true. But I've noticed this. When I pray for them, my attitude towards them changes. When we get, and and teachers are bad, we get together in the in the commons or in the uh, teacher's lounge and, and we can kind of vent and sometimes it's necessary to know there's others that you're not the only one that struggles with this but we get to venting and, and what happens is it's like why, there is no reason I should have to deal with that. There's no reason I should have to put up with this and that but it's just like Paul was talking about this morning with the kid that came down from Oklahoma City that was in a gang and he was the only one that could deal with him. And what happened? He got born again. He became a Christian. Those things that I should not, I think in my pride, I shouldn't have to do. If I would do what I know to do is good, then maybe there's a blessing in that. Not maybe, there is. No matter how it ends up, there's a blessing in doing what you know is good. And so I wonder how many problems would be solved instead of speaking evil of one another and finding faults and worrying about my rights and my happiness if we spent that time praying for one another and actually helping one another. And in doing that, it's the opposite. When the world looks at us and they see us fighting, it is a perfect excuse for them to say, I don't want anything to do with that. If that's what it is, I don't want anything to do with that. But when the world looks at us and sees us loving one another and sees us caring for one another and coming alongside and living this together and then they see us reaching out to those who can't help themselves, to those who can't help us, we're helping them with no expectation in return, just for the love of Christ. When they see that, then that's why they would ask about the hope that lies within you. Then that's when, in their minds, they'll say, now they may turn away from it because they are to pray, but they cannot deny the love that they see. And that love is powerful because that love comes from Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord. I thank you, God, that that you gave us this book, uh, James, who, who spoke so plainly by your, by your power of your spirit, uh, who speaks so clearly to us now. I pray, Lord, that we would not just take this and close it up and say amen, but that we would actually walk this out, I, that I would walk this out. God, you know how guilty I am of the lack of love I have for my brethren, the lack of love I have for, for your just mankind, for those who are out there, who are needing you, who are needing help. God, I pray, Lord, that you would cause us
to rise up and love them, to love one another and to love them, to love you, God. Our love has to come from you. It has to come for you and then flowing through that to them. Father, I pray for that for each of us. And I pray, God, if there's any here who have not bowed a knee to you, who have not experienced that love, that you would open their eyes and allow them to see your amazing grace and mercy this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.